The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to find food truth and connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And I am delighted today to welcome Dr. Ricardo Salvador. He is a senior scientist and director of the Food and Environment Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists based in Washington, D.C., He works with citizens, scientists, economists, and politicians to transition our current food system into one that grows healthy foods while employing sustainable practices. Prior to coming to the Union of Concerned Scientists, Dr. Salvador served as Program Officer for Food, Health, and Well-Being at the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. And very interestingly, prior to that, he was an Associate Professor of Agronomy at Iowa State University, where he taught the first course in sustainable agriculture at a land-grant university. He also was the first of faculty to develop the nation's first sustainable agriculture graduate program in 2000, where he served as the program's first chair. He earned his undergraduate degree in agricultural science from New Mexico State University, and he holds a master's and Ph.D. in crop production and physiology from Iowa State University. Welcome, Dr. Salvador. Hello, Melinda. It's great to be with you. Well, I wanted to interview you for many reasons. I've been a fan of the Union of Concerned Scientists for many years. And just recently, there was a new report called the $11 trillion reward, how simple dietary changes can save lives and money and how we get there. So I wanted to talk about the report, but I also wanted to talk to you as an agronomist and how you define both a food system and also sustainability. So let's start with a food system. I I think that's kind of a complicated word or term for people to really understand. How do you define it? Yeah, that is a very good point because the majority of us interact with our food by simply wondering what we want to have when we get hungry and then just being accustomed that within five minutes or sometimes within just a few steps, we can have whatever it is that pops into our mind. And, of course, in order for that to be possible, there is a very complex web of logistics in place that imply that we can command the resources and the materials of the world to flow toward us to satisfy whatever food need happens to pop into our mind. And so the answer to your question is that a food system is the set of parts that work in coordination to produce that outcome, that get that food from wherever in the world it's coming from, you know, whether it is in season or not, whether it is native to your locality or not, in what the food industry refers to as the edible bite, you know, that uh, as Coca-Cola likes to put it, it is right at desire's reach. So that is the design of that food system. Now, the other implication of that is that it's wondrous for those of us for whom it works, but it comes at tremendous cost, and I mean here literal capital financial cost. You cannot think about the power of this system to get you whatever it is that you desire from whatever part of the world it happens to be in season to you, and you have to remember that the system does this whether you actually eat that or not. It has to be available physically so that in case you want it, the food system can provide it for you. 
Well, you can't think of that tremendous power without realizing that that means tremendous financial power. So for those of us for whom it works, it means that we are very powerful and it means that we are very wealthy. So for those of us who are powerful and wealthy around the world, the food system is that set of interacting parts that gets us whatever we wish whenever we happen to think about it. And then there's the whole sustainability factor where we have to ask ourselves, is it sustainable then for those of us with money and power to eat strawberries in February and question the whole definition of sustainability to, you know, when we're talking about environment or social justice costs. And I see everybody saying that they're sustainable. You're based in Washington, D.C. You've seen the Monsanto posters. Monsanto tells us that they're sustainable. I have farmers who use many chemicals on their crops who tell me that they're sustainable. So what does that mean to you? Well, there's a reason why any number of either individuals, corporations, organizations can say that they're sustainable while A, believing it, and B, not being consistent with what they each believe sustainability is. Because there are all kinds of subsidiary questions that qualify what sustainability is. And so to make it simple to understand, you know, this is not a complicated concept. I think when we're very young, probably almost all of us participated in either grade school or high school athletics of some sort, and we know what it means to sustain, say, an effort, an athletic effort. And it simply means that there's a period of time over which you can maintain a particular activity at a particular rate. So when we apply it to sustainability, we simply mean that we can keep up whatever it is that we're talking about for a period of time. So that period of time is the critical thing to define, and obviously the question of the audience, the individual, the corporation for whom things are sustainable is also an important factor. So a one-liner to describe what sustainability is is that it is an activity that is not bounded in time. Because by definition, if you can keep up the given activity without worrying about time dimension, then that means that it is not a constraint, it is not a limit. But if you can't answer that by saying that it is unbounded in time, that there is some natural limit over which you are typically exhausting a finite resource. So going back to your original question, the reason why, say, some companies or some farmers of a very large scale can claim and believe what they're saying that they're sustainable is that for them, as long as they keep all of the pieces in motion, they can foresee that their business will continue over some period of time. But if that period of time is a horizon of five years or ten years, they don't mean the same thing as some of us who are thinking in terms of more important horizons for humanity as a whole. So let me just give you one example to give us all perspective on that. We are all babies, really infants in swaddling clothes when it comes to the practice of agriculture when you think about how long we've been around as human beings. So under the most liberal of interpretations, meaning when some of humanity began to practice agriculture, we've been doing agriculture for about 10,000 years. And that's an important distinction because not all of humanity adopted agriculture at the same time. So it happened in waves all over the world. But The first set of human beings that we know of right now who adopted agriculture did so in the Mideast around 10,000 years ago. Well, we've been around as a human species, recognizable as homo sapiens, for about 180 to about 200,000 years. 
So when you take a look at it in terms of that perspective, we haven't been doing agriculture for very long. Now, an additional refinement is that up until very, very recently, meaning up to about 100 to about 120 years ago, the kind of agriculture that we did had to make thermodynamic sense. It had to balance. And what I mean by that is that you needed to actually recoup more energy from the agricultural practice than you invested. Because if you think about it, when the energy going into agriculture came from biological traction and biological labor, meaning either the farmer's work or the animals that were domesticated to help with draft labor, then it meant that those animals and those human beings needed to be investing less energy in producing their food energy then was actually contained in the food energy, meaning that they were harvesting solar energy. If that were not true, if you invested more energy than you were getting out of your food, obviously you would die. That would not be sustainable in the energetic sense. Well, over the last 180 years, we've been able to escape that trap by using cheap fossil energy in order to subsidize our production. And so that means that today we can exist in a world where we actually invest more energy. Uh, The estimates are about 10 to 12 calories for every caloric food unit that we actually produce. And so you can see that from the energetic standpoint, this is only sustainable as long as, or for the period of time during which we have that cheap fossil fuel energy available and have the luxury of devoting a portion of that supply to food production. Wow. That's an amazing imbalance that we clearly take for granted. And so your work with the Union of Concerned Scientists, I know, looks at both the environment and the energy costs of our food system. Where do we go from here? If the present model we have is not sustainable, where do you see us going to correct the imbalance? Well, connecting with your prior question, the periods of time that matter when it comes to sustainability, I think, should be matched to those periods of time that I've just described. And so I gave that example mostly to point out that if we have been doing agriculture for 10,000 years, and if for about 180 years we've been doing this kind of agriculture, uh, which an agricultural an anthropologist, a cultural anthropologist by the name of Ernest Schuske, uh has called the neocaloric uh, type of agriculture, then it's reasonable to say when we evaluate sustainability, well, will we be able to continue to perform agriculture in this way for another 180 years, not to mention another 10,000 years, the entire period of time over which humanity has known how to perform agriculture. So even the uninformed in agriculture have got to say that the answer to the question, can we continue to do this even for the period of time that we already have been doing it, 10,000 years, has got to be no, simply because the present mode of agriculture is impossible without the fossil fuel subsidy. And even under the most generous estimates of the present, and I mean that literally, generous estimates of the present, when we think about all of the new technologies for extracting fossil fuel through uh, fracking and all kinds of other transformations of the fossil fuel supply, we're talking about a period of time something like about maybe 600 to 650 years. Now, that's very, very generous. So that doesn't mean it's not our problem today. And, you know, people 650 years need to worry about it. That means that now, while we have the power to think about 
the type of agriculture that is not bounded in time, it is our responsibility to do so. You know, there's any number of arguments to support that, but one simple argument to uh, support that is that we certainly do not have a just agricultural system if it has the future that in order for us to be able to benefit from us, we are excluding others from being able to benefit from it. That means that it's an unfair food system. If we do that in the present, it's not fair. And if we do it in the future, it's not fair. When we do it in the present, what it means is that the people that don't have the power and the wealth that we do to command the flow of the minerals, the energy, and all of the materials that are necessary to support our agricultural practices are being excluded because we, the wealthy, are appropriating their resources and their ability to sustain themselves. When we do it to people in the future, then we're not uh, appropriating resources in space. Now we're appropriating resources in time. And these are our descendants. So whichever way you look at it, it is uh, an unjust food system. So, And this has got to be one of the criteria for sustainability. So if a practice cannot be perpetuated over a particular period of time, it's not sustainable. And whenever you've got an unjust food system, you will have social dynamics in place that will make it so you're not able to perpetuate it indefinitely in time because obviously those that don't benefit from it will rise up, will actually create problems for those that are uh, uh, benefiting from the system. Mm -hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with Dr. Ricardo Salvador. He is the Senior Scientist and Director of the Food and Environment Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists based in Washington, D.C. And I wanted to speak with Dr. Salvador because of a brand new report that the Union of Concerned Scientists just came out with called the $11 trillion reward, how simple dietary changes can save lives and money and how we get there. And I think your last statement about future sustainability uh, segues nicely into this report in that clearly uh, as a dietitian and I look at the health problems that our diet has reaped, you know, certainly I believe that food is the first medicine. And if anything, the food that I see that's produced by this unsustainable energy-wise food system is making us sick. So there again, we have an issue of sustainability, and we can't produce food and feed people food that's going to make us sick unless, of course, we want to feed maybe the healthcare industry, because that seems to be thriving in our economy, because as people are sick, they need healthcare services. But we certainly would want to save those dollars and pump them into the economy in a different way. And I love this report because it has such a simple recommendation, right? Just eat more fruits and vegetables. You'll save billions of dollars just with regard to cardiovascular disease. We're not even looking at arthritis and obesity and cancer. But the Union of Concerned Scientists report talks about how our farm policies do not support the recommendations that are made by health organizations. And I'll give you a good example. Uh, There's a farmer here in Missouri that was taking out fruit trees in order to plant more corn because it was more profitable for him to do so. And yet, we've got recommendations to eat more fruits and vegetables. I have other friends who are producing organic seeds for tomatoes and squash, those kinds of fruits and vegetables that are recommended in this report. And yet spray drift from the commodity crops that are rewarded financially are causing damage to her crops. So we have to climb ourselves out of this problem. Where do you see us starting? Yeah, well, that's very well summarized, Melinda. I could not agree more, both with the summary of the report and also the challenges that we have in order to redirect 
Well, it, it's very important that we redirect. For the reasons that you summarized out of our report, we've identified policies that actually perpetuate the system that we have in place right now that incentivize and reward the overproduction of all the wrong stuff, the stuff that, as you've said, makes us sick, the stuff that is really abundant and available and therefore is the first thing that we reach for when we get hungry as we go about our daily lives. And we don't support the production of the good stuff, the stuff that actually is nourishing, is wholesome, will contribute to our longevity. And so in order to be able to deal with this, we have to understand that the system that's in place was not created by the market. We have a more than justifiable reason, all of us as U.S. citizens, to make a claim for reform of this system because the market is not operating in a vacuum. It is influenced by a number of distortions that many uh, were put into place for a number of good reasons decades ago, but circumstances have shifted, and yet the policy interventions mostly intended to support farmers across the Midwest have not been reformed in tandem with what the reality is today. So uh, the market for most Midwestern farmers today is excellent, mostly because there is tremendous demand for biofuels and there is tremendous demand for grain and, and for a number of different purposes, feeding and so on. So the market is currently very good for farmers throughout the Midwest, and yet we continue to have in place programs that were intended to support farmers who were failing decades ago. And to the extent that they have been reformed, they've been reformed so that we account for anything that could go wrong in uh, modern large-scale industrial farming. Basically, if it's a market failure, if it's a natural disaster, the U.S. taxpayer will step in. And this is a policy that in principle, of course, is well-intended. But I'll give you just one statistic that should give everyone pause, particularly those that are not familiar with the outcomes of, of these federal policies. We invest collectively an average of about $5 billion in direct payments to farmers these days. And uh, on average, the medium farming income is $80,500 a year, whereas the medium family income in the United States is $50,000 a year. So these programs that were put in place to support failing farmers uh, back in the 30s and the 40s are now programs that are not needed given the market realities. We are supporting farmers, and of course this is a median value, so it doesn't reflect the reality for all farmers. But for farmers that are participating from these programs in the Midwest that have both a good market and, in addition, federal subsidies to support them, we're supporting them to live at a standard of living which is above the standard of living of the average citizen. Now, I want to be really clear what this means. What this means is that the U.S. citizen and the federal government can declare victory here. The intention of those programs, which is to lift up those uh, rural farmers of the 30s and 40s above the poverty level and get them to where they could have parity in terms of well-being and in terms of quality of life with those who lived in cities uh, at that time in the eastern seaboard, well, that policy objective has been obtained. This is a place where we can declare victory walk away and find either a different way to invest those resources or save those resources. Otherwise, any way you look at it, it's a fiscal boondoggle. So that's exactly what we are saying. Uh, we are saying, therefore, let's invest in the type of food system that actually does make us healthy. And uh, the specific policy reforms that we uh, identify are summarized in our report, but I can give you just the top line of them. 
some of the examples of the things that we have in mind is that we currently have a tremendous research apparatus that is focused on supporting this overproductive system that we have. And I mean that literally. Many of the problems that we have in agriculture throughout, not only in terms of the environment, but in terms of health, are the result of overproduction, not of insufficient production. And so we need to change our research priorities. We understand productivity and how to stoke productivity. That's no longer the limiting factor. It is not a constraint. These days, what we need to do is to produce more of the right stuff. So I wonder how many folks are aware that when you advocate for the production of more fruits and vegetables, this is almost an impossibility for farmers in the Midwest, particularly those that are dependent on federal subsidies. There's been an agreement that is embodied in federal policies that if you're going to be receiving subsidies for corn and soy, you cannot grow fruits and vegetables on your farm. And the reason for this is that a very small amount of land in the Midwest during the summer could produce more than enough to satisfy the fruit and vegetable demand of this nation if we consume fruits and vegetables at the level that the USDA recommends that we consume. Not at the level of wild-eyed foodies, but just at the level that the USDA Food Nutrition uh, Service recommends. And, of course, that would be a threat to fruit and vegetable producers in California. And so the tacit agreement in terms of supporting Midwestern farmers to receive subsidies while California farmers don't receive subsidies, at least in the form of direct payments, is then that Midwestern farmers won't compete with California farmers for production of fruits and vegetables. So that means that if you're a Midwestern farmer and you want to transition to produce fruits and vegetables, you would lose your federal subsidies if you did so. So that needs to be rethought. You know, that is a policy that is actually leading to negative effects, actually toxic effects, if you consider that there's a direct correlation between our eating fruits and vegetables and the incidence of cardiovascular disease and all these other diet-related illnesses that you recited. So that's a very direct policy target. Another is that if you want to get crop insurance, which is heavily subsidized by the government, presently you're able to do so directly through a system that works very well if you're a large-scale industrial farmer in the Midwest. But if you're a small-scale farmer that wants to get into fruits and vegetables, the, the Farm Service Agency will tell you that there is not enough information in actuarial tables for them to be able to judge what the risk is that they need to cover for small-scale fruits and vegetables. Therefore, they can't put a fair price. So either a number of things happen. Either they can't provide the coverage for you, or if they will provide coverage, they will do so at an average price for production of the most similar crop that they can find in the region, and typically, this leads to small-scale farmers overpaying for the insurance that they need. And so this also needs rectifying. There are much better ways of approaching this, and it's a very doable policy target for reform. Also, when you think about where people might go in order to get additional supply of fruits and vegetables, particularly during the summer when the stuff is fresh, and if we're concerned about affordability, then we need to make sure that there are venues such as direct sales available to farmers uh, or farmers markets or for institutions that there are food hubs that can aggregate that supply and distribute it to institutions such as schools and hospitals and so on. And so there are a number of very inexpensive policy reforms that can be put into place to support and incentivize the establishment of 
farmers market CSAs and direct marketing and farm to school programs. And we actually have policy recommendations for that. If uh, any of your listeners are interested in that, they can go to analysis that we have uh, online, which is called Plant to Plate. And uh, in essence, our conclusions after we do the economic analysis is that if you follow the recommendations that I've just enumerated for you, as opposed to investing $5 billion in the present system, which overproduces the stuff that makes us sick, it's the wrong stuff, it's the ingredients for the junk food diet, and instead we invested just $90 million, so not even a billion, but just $90 million in the incentives for the type of food system and retail channels that I described, then the outcome would be that we would have a net of 189,000 jobs that presently don't exist, to produce and distribute those fruits and vegetables. And there'd be a net economic impact of $9.5 billion in agriculture that we currently don't have. Hmm. I'm so glad you brought up the issue of the fruit and vegetable production because it was a part of that report that I circled and I was hoping you would get to. We don't have much time left, and there's so much more that I want to ask you, but I want to leave with one final question that comes from an article that you wrote for the Green Fire Times. And I Highly recommend this to our listeners. It was in the December 2012 issue. It's called Food Choices, Modernity and the Responsibility of Eaters. Dr. Salvador, how do we help people care and become more responsible eaters? Well, the responsibility that I'm referring to in that piece, Melinda, is, is the responsibility of us as citizens to demand of our federal government that it put our collective resources, our collective treasure, that's not just our tax dollars, but our natural resources, to the use that most benefits public health and well-being. That's not an unreasonable ask. That's what this democracy is built upon. Instead, we have a system that concentrates wealth, a system that captures the resources and the treasure of the nation for the benefit of a small number of us. And that's not the country that I believe any one of us wants to be a part of. So even though, yes, it's important that on an individual level we can make personal food choices, the point of the article is that collectively we need to make the demands that will transform the food system. There needs to be a market whereby we can speak to the fact that we value agricultural practices that make us healthy, agricultural practices that will conserve natural resources so that the practice of agriculture won't be bounded in time, and agricultural practices that are fair, that are just, where we don't have a reality where some of the people that invest their time and their labor in the production of our food are not able to afford the output of that food system. And I think it's the most American thing that can be done for a number of reasons. One of the ways that I can convey this the most simply is that I think that the core of the American spirit is never to be satisfied and always to improve systems. And so in agriculture, we have learned how to be productive. We have learned how to mechanize and eliminate some of the drudgery in agriculture. There have been clear victories in terms of our learning how to perform agriculture. And the most American thing to say is, and it's not enough, we still need to improve the fairness, the affordability, the healthfulness, and the greenness or sustainability of this system. And we'll have to leave it at that. That's a great send-off. Listeners, we have been speaking with Dr. Ricardo Salvador. He is the Senior Scientist and Director of the Food and Environment Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. We have been talking about the $11 trillion reward, how simple dietary changes can save lives and money, and how we get there. 
The website is www.ucsusa.org slash healthy food. I'll make that available on our website. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And Dr. Salvador, I want to thank you again for being my guest and for all the important work and messages you bring to the public. Thank you for having me, Melinda, and thank you for the important work that you're doing as well. 